I have uh, been given a tremendous gift. Uh, I received a spiritual awakening that allowed me to be honest with myself uh, so that I could be sober and live the life I've always wanted to live. Welcome to the Recovery Edgecast. My name is Alfredo and I'm an alcoholic. Today my guest is Brian M. How's it going, Brian? I'm good, Alfredo. Nice to be with you today. I met Brian at the Happy Trudgers Group in Denver. There is a lot of great sobriety there. And Brian has been there since day one when I first stepped in the room, and I've always appreciated his shares and his outlook. Brian, why don't you start us off with your sobriety date and your home group? Sure, and thanks for that introduction. Um, my sobriety date is November 2nd, 1992, and my home group is the Happy Treasures Group at the Trinity Church in downtown Denver. How many years is that? Well, it's coming up on uh, 29. I'm not taking that for granted yet because I'm not quite there, so yeah. 28 plus. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And we're here in your office today, and it's neat to see people coming back to work and Denver is getting busy again. What are you up to these days? Yeah, I'm still uh, working full-time. I'm a full-time attorney. Almost drank a legal career away, but uh, I've had a great career and uh, um, have a very successful little firm here. All right, cool. Uh, why don't you run us through your story, uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like today? Sure, and I'll just start. Um, I've looked back on this a, a number of times over the years, and the uh, the first things that are important to me are, number one, like many of the alcoholics we run across is, I love to drink. Absolutely loved it. Uh, but I wanted to go back even further. You know, I never knew how much my life was impacted by alcohol early on in my life. And it wasn't because of my parents. But when I was six years old, we were traveling back to Ohio to visit my mom's side of the family. And uh, we were in a so that would have been six, like 1963. We're traveling back to Ohio, and out of nowhere, uh, we get broadside on the highway by another car. And it turned out it was a drunk driver, and the guy was totally blasted. And he came off a dirt road and uh, hit our car full speed on the on the highway. And uh, I spent uh, two months in Kewanee, Illinois, and I was the least injured in my entire family. Um, this guy mangled my whole family, and particularly my mother. My mother was in hospitals and operations, and, you know, they said she'd never walk again. And then somebody said, no, I think we can, you know, fashion a new bone and do a bone graft for her ankle bone. And uh, um, but she was many years of operations and et cetera. And, you know, that point uh, impacted my whole life. It changed. Uh, my mom was in chronic pain from that point on. And to hear my dad uh, talk about it, I was only six, is that my mother was a delightfully happy person, but had lots of anger after that because she was in chronic pain. It's hard to be happy when you're in pain all day long. And she died early, uh, younger than I am. She died when... Uh, she was 60 years old. So that's, uh, I like to start it with that now because that's kind of the first impact in my life of alcohol. I never knew that there was, uh, I never knew about alcoholism. I discovered alcohol when I was, I think, a junior in high school. And we were getting some 3-2 beer, and I just loved how it made me feel. I was always the, uh, 
I was a friendly kid, but I always was uh, uh, shy. I had a hard time talking to girls. I had a hard time letting loose and dancing and things like that. And uh, we went to this party before the school dance one time, and uh, it allowed me to be exactly how I wanted to be. I uh, drank plenty of beer, and I was dancing all night, and I was... Uh, very friendly with a few different girls in high school, and uh, I thought I had found the magic elixir, uh, and I just loved how it made me feel. And so I always looked forward to the opportunities that I would have to, to drink. Um, you know, I was like most people, I got sick uh, early on because I drank too much, and the bed would be spinning, and I would be puking, and uh, I still couldn't wait to do it the next time. And, uh, you know, my alcoholism progressed from there uh, at first at a slower rate. I just uh, drank at, uh, I would say, appropriate occasions uh, through college. Had, uh, you know, um, I was the University of Denver all-campus drinking champion. Uh, we had to drink shots of beer every minute until everybody else gave up. And when we were done, I said, hey, you guys want to go drinking? You know, so even after winning the all-campus drinking, I was uh, I could hold lots of liquor uh, and uh, have lots of fun, and it really didn't cause too many ramifications in my life. Uh, that's uh, until I got out and I was working in the uh, the real world, and uh, um, it started having more of an impact. I kind of found that, uh, which I think all alcoholics find, is that at some point that once I put alcohol in my system, I didn't stop. Uh, at first, I didn't notice that I couldn't stop, but it's just I didn't want to stop. I put alcohol in, and uh, I say it's the disease of more, and that's where I was. I always wanted to have more. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't cause me too many negative consequences. Maybe if I'd had more, um, uh, I would have stopped sooner. You know, I never got a DUI. But I'll tell you two stories that are frightening of when I should have had DUIs. One, I had been at a, a company function, and I drank way too much. And I got pulled over on I-25 on my way home. And uh, I was sure I was going to get a DUI. And the next thing I remember, I'm waking up in my bed at home. And I still, to this day, have no recollection of what happened. I don't know if I... Um, my suspicion is, and I have some recollection of this, that the state trooper got a call for an emergency situation and he left before he had an opportunity to really realize that I was, uh, I was drunk and blacked out and driving. And the second time where I almost got a DUI, I had gone to a Halloween party and I was dressed uh, simply as a baby. I had a big diaper on and that was it and I had booze in my baby bottle and I was drinking it and I got totally wasted that night at the party and I had the good fortune for me, misfortune for her to pick up a woman that I just know as Pebbles. She was dressed with a leopard skin and a bone through her hair and uh, um, so I was driving her home and in between going into the party and leaving the party it snowed like six inches. So here I am, I'm leaving, and I only have a diaper on, and I'm driving Pebbles home, and I'm trying to be extra cautious because I know I'm, I'm drunk. And I'm driving, and the light turns at an intersection, yellow, when I'm about halfway through the intersection. So I slam on my brakes, and I kind of slide, and I back up. 
and I see a police car off on the right, and I was like, oh, shoot. I'm sure that guy just saw me, and I'm in trouble. Sure enough, as soon as I got past the police car, they turned on their lights, they pulled me over, and as soon as I got stopped, I hopped out of the car with nothing but a diaper on, ran through six inches of snow back to the police car, and I just, uh, I said, hey, officers, I'm really sorry. Um, I shouldn't be driving. I'm drunk. I'll go down here to this coffee shop and drink all night uh, until I sober up, and they couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> they laughed so hard, and they put me through a, a test of... Uh, uh, to see if I was drunk, and they were convinced I was drunk. And they went to Pebbles, who was with me, and they said, excuse me, miss, have you been drinking tonight? And she said, no. I had no idea if she'd been drinking or not. <laughs> I just, uh, But she said no, and they said, well, why don't you drive him home? So, uh, you know, I always say I've never had a DUI, but, you know, as my drinking progressed, I should have had thousands. Every single day of my life, I, uh, after a certain point, I should have had a DUI. I went at some point from, you know, what I would call an alcohol abuser to alcohol dependent. Uh, and that's when alcoholism for me really got bad. And the funny stories of almost getting DUIs and the stupid stuff I did uh, growing up, uh, either on sports teams or other events, all that went away. And I got to the point where I needed to have alcohol in my system. Um, and when I say I had to have alcohol in my system, this is the question I would ask myself as a maintenance drinker when I would wake up in the morning. Do I honestly believe that if I don't have some alcohol this morning, I will die of withdrawals? And if I would answer that question yes, which I always did, I would go immediately to the liquor store. Sometime I couldn't, sometimes I couldn't wait for the liquor store, so I would do that hunt around the house to find out, could I find any alcohol left over? There never was any. And then I would go to the 7-Eleven because little known fact is you could buy 3-2 beer at 7 in the morning and the liquor stores didn't open till 8. So I could drink some 3-2 beer until I could get to the liquor store and then I would drink vodka and lemon ice Gatorade on my way to work every single day. Um, and then I would have to drink alcohol throughout the day. I just would maintain that alcohol level. Uh, and uh, now's when I started to get consequences. Uh, I had become married to somebody I love very much, uh, and she saw, finally started seeing where this alcohol was taking me. We had a, a number of life events that weren't very fair to us. Uh, our house was broken into three times. Our car was stolen. My law firm I worked for closed its door, and I had to find a new job, and my wife had five miscarriages right in a row, um, and uh, she got sadder and I got drunker. Um, everything that, uh, and I always look back on this now as a great gift that I had. I think I would have been, which back then was my goal, a heavy drinker for a long time. I so wanted to be a heavy drinker. Just let me be a heavy drinker. I'm okay if I die a little sooner as long as I can still drink. But what happened is when all those events uh, occurred, I started drinking more because it's the only solution I had to feel differently. So uh, when something bad happened, my wife got sad and I got drunk and I stayed drunk and what I look at, look at it now is it slammed me down to the bottom of the alcohol uh, pool. Um, I was, uh, I now was that person who had a drink every single morning and I drank throughout the day and I hid it from uh, my wife then until she started figuring out and finding uh, that I was drinking during the day or if I had to run an errand I always was going to the bar and uh, I uh, 
I think it, uh, just to give some perspective, is that my average daily alcohol consumption was probably a quart or a little more than a quart of vodka and uh, at least a 12-pack of beer. And that was every day how much I was drinking throughout the day. And then you can throw in a few trips to the bar and stuff where I would have one or two drinks that appeared to be very socially responsible. People didn't know that I was drinking the other quart of vodka and the 12-pack of beer. So when I got sober, most people were like, God, there's really a lot of guys in this bar that drink a lot. You don't drink a lot. Uh, Little did they know. Um, I was drinking around the clock and drinking all the time, and I was coming into work, and I, uh, before I would get to work, I had already had a pint of vodka, uh, and uh, I would mix it with Gatorade because I was trying to rehydrate myself at the same time I was drinking, and I would drink throughout the day, and uh, you know, I would appear normal to most people for a long period of time. I would eat uh, peanut butter, Hall's mentholiptus. I found all sorts of things that you could put in your mouth that would hide the odor of alcohol, or at least I thought it did. Um, and then as everything started going bad, um, I finally, and my wife left me, I now thought, okay, um, I'm going to die soon. I really am going to die soon, and I'm going to uh, so uh, I had a buddy of mine who was a really good friend growing up. He researched uh, all of the different treatment facilities and uh, trying to said, I can take you to Harmony or I can take you to Parker Valley Hope or I can take you to, um, d- you know, different uh, treatment facilities. And I, I finally went to Parker Valley Hope and I went there and it was my first time there. And this was right after my wife had said, you know, I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving you. I'm serving you with divorce. And so I always thought you get another chance no matter what. So I remember being in treatment and going, uh, calling her up and saying, oh, you'll never guess where I am. I'm finally in treatment. So everything is going to be just fine. And I remember her saying, you don't get it. I'm done. I am done. This is over. Uh, You can do whatever you want. I really don't care anymore what you're doing or where you are. I've had enough. And so... uh, I did what a respectable alcoholic would be. I left treatment. I was like, well, if I'm not going to get my wife back, what's the use of staying sober? Uh, so that started the uh, probably a two to three year, what I call the dark years. And those were uh, periods of being extremely intoxicated, um, followed by somebody taking me to detox or taking me to treatment again or hospitalization. I was hospitalized with pancreatitis. They said I had pancreatitis. My pancreas had swollen so big that I had internal bleeding. So they put you in the hospital for a week, and they give you ice chips, and that's it. And the other thing, just so you know, if you go to the hospital of uh, pancreatitis, they treat you as though it's a self-inflicted wound, so they don't really treat you very nice either. Um, So you're feeling badly enough, and then you get treated as though you're a leper. And that's kind of what it's like to be an alcoholic. And uh, so I went to uh, Parker Valley Hope. Uh, I'm still not sure because I, I think those three years, my dark years, I call them, uh, uh, I was in a multi-year blackout, and I don't really remember things very well. Um, I'm guessing that I went there eight times to treatment. Uh, and every time I would declare myself well and I would leave and I'm going to do it, uh, I'm going to make it, but I always ended up thinking that, well... 
if I just do something different, maybe it'll be okay. Or this time, it's been 60 days since I've had a drink, so I'm probably okay to drink again. I've reset my drinker. Why can't I go back? If I could go forward in being an alcoholic, they say it's progressive. Well, maybe it can be regressive too. It never was. It just always kept getting worse no matter how long I stopped. Um, and I would honestly say that I worked harder trying to continue to drink than anything else I've worked at in my life. I kept trying to find a new way to, to be able to drink, but at the end of my drinking, when I was truly the maintenance drinker, it never got better. As soon as I put alcohol in my system, I know within a day or two, I would wake up and ask that question. Do I honestly think I will die today if I don't put alcohol in my system to stave off the, uh, the withdrawals? And the reason I did that, and I don't know, a lot, not all alcoholics go through this, but when I would go to detox or to treatment, I would have severe withdrawals. And when I say severe, I'm saying usually about five days of um, sweats that you can't stop, that keep changing the sheets, you're shaking, you're hallucinating. You know, I think of Dennis Hopper on the movie Hoosiers, and when he was locked up and going through treatment, that, that's what it was like for me. It was horrible. It was more painful than any sports injury, knee operations, broken bones. It was far more painful than anything else I'd gone through. And so you ask yourself, why would somebody pick up a drink again? Because that's the hold that alcohol had on me. I just couldn't stop. And so I kept on trying over and over. I remember one time um, in detox, I went in and... uh, this was one of my earlier times, and uh, this guy looked at me. He said, you know, you, I can just tell by looking at you, you're going to have seizures tonight. Um, he goes, um, so there, you have a choice. You can stay here and have seizures, and then they'll ship you over to the hospital, or you can leave right now, and there's a bar just over a block this way and a block that way, and they will give you a drink for each one of your, they called them detox rebox, but the little um, shoe covers that they give you when they take your shoes away when you're in detox, they say you could trade in each one of those for a drink. And so that could get you to hold over till you get home and you can get some real alcohol in you. And I remember that being just an incredibly difficult decision. Do I go trade in my detox rebox and get a drink? and then not have to go through withdrawals, or do I stay here? And I stayed there and toughed it through, um, and I remember getting out of there and thinking, I have just lived through the toughest thing in my life. I will never drink again. And I would take my bicycle and I would ride over the detox every day just to remind myself um, that uh, that's where I was and I was never gonna drink again. Um, And that was about a year before I got sober. So after that, I probably had three or more trips to uh, treatment, three or more trips to detox, new trips to the hospital. Um, And it got to a point really where everybody that knew me assumed I was going to die. My sister had called the police on me. Um, My brother had, uh, I think, moved to Kentucky because he didn't want his kids to have to see me drink myself to death. Um, and he had given my sister a letter, and um, this was the next time that I had that I was sure I was never going to drink again. And he went off to the first Gulf War. He was a doctor in the Army, and he was stationed out in the Iraq desert to try and help during the first Gulf War. And he had given my sister a letter, 
and said, if you ever think Brian's not going to make it, give him this letter. And the letter was really just a love letter from my brother telling me how much he loved me, how much he was going to miss me, how much I meant to him, uh, but that he wanted to say goodbye and make sure that I knew how much he loved me. Um, and uh, he was still off in the Gulf War, and I got this letter, and I thought, okay. I went to detox again, and I was like, I am going to stay sober now. I have people that love me. I thought my brother had sort of disowned me because he told me he didn't want to see me until I got sober. And I thought, well, screw you. I'm the guy drinking himself to death. How come you don't want to help me? Why won't you help me? But really, his help was greater than anybody else's because he was the one that said, I don't want anything to do with you. It was the tough love sort of thing until uh, you get sober. And um, the last time that I drank, I... Um, I had been sober after being in treatment again for a few weeks, and I met a, a new woman uh, who was really cute, and she asked me if I would go to a Halloween party with her. I don't know what it is about me drinking in Halloween, but um, so it was a Thursday night, and I thought, there is no way I can go to a Halloween party with this new really cute woman and not drink because I won't be funny. I won't be able to dance. I'll just be boring in glum, like it says in the big book, without alcohol in my system. So I'm just going to have just a couple drinks because I'm really not going to get drunk. I'm just going to have a couple drinks so that I won't be so self-conscious when I have a drink at the Halloween party. I had a couple drinks on a Thursday night. I woke up Friday morning knowing I was going to die if I didn't have another drink. And I called the woman and made up some excuse and got in a fight with her so that I could uh, drink around the clock again. And uh, uh, it got to the point that uh, I knew what was coming, and uh, so I went into treatment for the last time on Tuesday. Started drinking on a Thursday. By Tuesday, I was back as bad as I had ever been and uh, went into treatment for, I didn't know it then, a final time. I really had sort of given up. I had thought, this is not going to work for me. This works for a lot of people, I guess. But it's not going to work for me. And I didn't know if it was uh, because I was constitutionally incapable of being honest or it's uh, God was done with me. I'd always say, God, help me. And, you know, I'd end up drunk again. I'll just regress here once. When my mom was dying of cancer, I had made a deal with God that if he saved her, I would stop drinking. I couldn't stop drinking and she died of cancer, so I sort of knew that God wasn't on my side any longer. So I thought this whole God thing uh, with Alcoholics Anonymous couldn't work for me. But I was going to die soon, and I had good evidence that I was going to die soon. Uh, I had drank myself to a condition that I could barely walk. I didn't have strength to walk. I couldn't keep food down anymore. I was peeing blood. I'd had pancreatitis, alcoholic hepatitis. Um, and I just one day, that Tuesday, I didn't want to die. And so I uh, called my sister and said, would you uh, help me get back into Parker Valley Hope for the eighth, ninth time? And they said, we will only take you as long as you come in and you do absolutely everything we ask you to. You stay here for the full 30 days. Um, and, um, you know, I always promised anything when I got in there. Um, and I promised them, oh, yeah, I'll do all that. And I drove myself. My sister said it was the scariest she followed me over there in the scariest thing she had ever done. And I always thought I drove just fine uh, over to treatment and checked myself in. And the reason I wanted to really drive myself there was because I had a quart of vodka in my car. So just in case I needed it, uh, 
Um, but I went to treatment one final time, and after I had gone through the detox and I had uh, was there, I started bargaining with them. I need to get back to work. Uh, my clients need me. Uh, and the guys at my work had finally figured out what uh, was going on, and they uh, said, we don't want you back. You can't come back to work unless you uh, stay there and do absolutely everything that they say. And I remember where I was. I was walking down the, the hallway, and uh, I just had this moment of surrender where I just say, I can't do this anymore. I am done. I am so sick of, uh, and I have no more strength to fight this anymore. I am just going to do whatever they tell me to do. I don't think it will work. I think I will die of alcoholism, but I'm going to do whatever they say. And uh, I've never drank since. Uh, I got out of there and I started going to, I had to keep a card. And you know, if somebody tells you to keep a card, you always could sign that yourself. But somehow I took my card and for 90 days I had somebody else sign it and I went every single day and I did whatever they said and I followed the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They, um, this God that I didn't believe in, I prayed to him in the morning and I thanked him at night and I did that for a period of time. And there was a point at about 60 days where I was driving downtown and it was a blue sky, sunny day that only Colorado has that blue sky that you go, gosh, it's beautiful out. And I felt for the first time in a number of years that I was happy to be alive. I hadn't felt like that in a long time. And I don't know what it was, but my sense of my higher power is kind of a I'm not alone sort of feeling that uh, I still to this day pray often. Uh, and I just have a sense, I don't know what God is, but God's in my life. Uh, and I have this sense that I'm not alone and uh, I don't have to run the world anymore. I don't have to fix all the problems in the world anymore. I just have to do my part. I have to work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have to uh, maintain my spiritual life, which I do through prayer and meditation. Um, and I also, as part of my program, um, in the 20, almost 29 years I've been sober, I pretty much have had at least one sponsee. So I worked through all the steps. Uh, backtrack. When I got sober, I worked through all the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, including uh, doing a personal inventory, uh, making amends, um, and then um, you know continuing to carry this message to other alcoholics. And in the 29 years I've been sober, I have usually had at least one sponsee that I'm taking through the steps actively at all times. That is. Uh, has changed through COVID. I haven't had, a, I've had my other sponsees that I've worked with in the past that still contact me, but I don't have anybody currently working through the steps for the first time in my, my sobriety. But I continue to work the steps. Um, I have made amends uh, to everybody that I know that I have harmed, and I continue to take amend, make amends to people that I have harmed. You know, my sponsor, my first ex-wife, um, I didn't make a, a amends to her right away because he said, well, you may need to make sure your motives are right. And my motive was I want her to love and admire me again. Um, and so I didn't make them until I'd been sober about six years, and I finally made amends to my ex, first ex-wife. I called her and asked her. I said, I'll fly to Chicago where she was living at the time. I'll come and make amends. And she said, no, 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 no. I'll get back to you. I'll let you know how we can do this. And I never heard from her again. So I wrote her this lengthy letter of everything I could think of that I did wrong, 
while I was drinking. And I mailed it off to her. And within two days, she called me and she said, well, I'm sorry I never called you back, but I figured, number one, you weren't sincere. And number two, you really weren't sober because nobody like you could really get sober. She goes, I've read your letter, though, and so I'm willing to give you the benefit of the doubt that maybe you've been sober for a little while. So she agreed to let me go through this amend process with her. And I did. I went through and I made amends for everything. Um, and she had a lot more things. She said my letter was grossly inadequate. <laughs> and so then she proceeded to tell me all the things that I had left out. And um, I made amends to her and really thought it went well. And I thought, gosh, she's going to love and admire me again. And I said, is there anything else that I can do? And she said, yes. All I ask of you, I want you never to contact me, see me, seek me out, send me an email, have no contact with me ever again. And uh, I was heartbroken, and I thought, oh, gosh, this, this can't work. And I went to my sponsor, and I said, what do I do? And he says, you honor her request. You've made your amend, and you honor her request. But you know what? Um, after making that amend, it was about two weeks later, a buddy of mine came up, and he said, you know, what's going on? I haven't heard you talk about your ex-wife in a while. And what I realized is I got the freedom that the program promises, even though it didn't go like I wanted it to go. Um, but I got the freedom that I wanted. Um, and just to update on that story, it was about 15 years later, I get an email from my first ex-wife that said, hey, I'm going to be in Denver. Can we have lunch? And we had lunch, and I finally got that closure that I thought I wanted. She said, you know, I'm sort of looking at my life. I think it's what you did 15 years ago, and i got to say I'm really sorry. All the stuff we had go wrong. Uh, no, no marriage could have survived all the stuff we had go wrong. You know, the drinking part, you made amends about that, and I'm here to say I'm sorry for my part in it, too. And now we're, we're twice a year email friends, you know, so it, uh, it really worked out. The other thing that, uh, and I don't know why these things happen, but I continue to make uh, amends as I go. I had made amends to my ex-wife. I didn't realize till I had my daughters, and I have three beautiful daughters now, but when I had my daughters, I all of a sudden realized that I needed to make amends to my first ex-wife's father because I went to him before I got married, and I said, could I marry your daughter? And he said, yes, as long as you promise to take care of her. Well, having my own daughters, I realized how important that is that my daughters be taken care of, and I realized I did a really crappy job, so I made amends to my first ex-wife's father. I didn't realize that I had caused that harm till many years later with my daughters. And then um, just last week, I got a letter. My first year of college, I went to Cornell in upstate New York. And um, that's when my drinking started to take off in college. And I was really a crappy roommate. I was really mean to my roommate. I think I was probably disgusting. I think that I, I really felt bad, and, but I hadn't thought of that for 45 years. Well, last week I got a, a piece of mail, and it was from the Class of 1979 Memorial Scholarship Fund Chairman Daniel Mansour, and he was my freshman roommate. So I looked in the uh, mailing, and I found his email address, and I sent him an email uh, last week and uh, apologized for being a crappy freshman roommate and uh, we've had a nice exchange of emails since then. Um, so I continue to make these uh, men's because I want to have the freedom the program promises me. Uh, I've had a life beyond that I ever imagined. I, I don't think most people 
wanted to be Ward Cleaver on the Leave It to Cleaver uh, on the Leave It to Beaver show, but that was always my goal. I wanted to be a responsible guy. I wanted to be a responsible dad. I wanted to be somebody people could count on. I wanted to be a good friend. I wanted to show up when I promised I would show up. And I can be all those things today. Um, I can be exactly the person I want today. Um, I've gotten everything I ever wanted through working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it comes down to now, I try and live each day in gratitude and uh, I am a very lucky man. So after your um, last stint in, uh, it wasn't really rehab, it was... Um... My last one wasn't rehab. It was at Parker Valley Hope, yeah. You started being like honest. Yeah. Why do you think that was that happened? Like that's different than it was before. But like you start you started going to meetings, doing exactly what they said, and like I just wrote that you were just honest. Yeah, and um, it, 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 honestly, it, a big chunk of it came right away there when I finally surrendered. But it also was a, a work over time to become rigorously honest. But I became honest then because I had always sort of thought, I need to keep two worlds out there. I need to keep, you know, the people who know I shouldn't drink separate from the people I want to drink with. And so I had to lie all the time. You know, I had to lie to people how much I was drinking because I needed to protect my alcohol. If they knew how much I was really drinking, they would make me stop. And same with the people who I drank with. If they knew how bad I really was, um, they would make me stop. And so when I finally decided I really wanted to be sober more than I want to be dead, um, I got honest about that part. I got honest about my drinking. And when I agreed to work everything in the program, I was honest with other people about my drinking. Some other parts of my uh, honesty came more slowly. I always thought I was an entirely honest guy except for my drinking. Well, I, my honesty really had taken a big hit uh, through my drinking, and I realized that a lot of my um, dishonesty came with what I would call boasting or storytelling. And so I had to take a look at that, because uh, one time I, I realized that when I was telling this great story, uh, it was one of my favorite ones about being up at Red Rocks when the Grateful Dead played up at Red Rocks, and I had passed out across the roadway, and... Um, Jerry Garcia in his limo was driving up the road, and Jerry Garcia got out and helped move me off the road so their limo could get up so they could play up at Red Rocks. Uh, it was a great story until my brother looked at me and goes, that didn't happen to you, that happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so not only did I embellish and lie in my stories, but I actually stole other people's stories. If it was funny enough, I would steal their stories. So my stories aren't as funny as they used to be, but I, I now look at it and I'm... Uh, yeah, you know, I'm as honest as I can be, and if I if I do something wrong, I make amends today. If you could sum up your story in two sentences or a sentence or two, how would that read? I have uh, been given a tremendous gift. Uh, I received a spiritual awakening that allowed me to be honest with myself, uh, so that I could be sober and live the life I've always wanted to live. Now, if you could give yourself a piece of advice in that first year, what would you say? You know, I would get back my advice up earlier than that and say, as soon as you know, um, as soon as I knew that what I had was the disease of more, 
that I had the phenomenon of craving that if I put any alcohol in my system that I would always want more and it was a progressive illness and it was never going to get better. I really wish I had gotten this sooner. You know, so my advice would be as soon as you know you have the disease of more, stop. Any parting words for our listeners? If you have the disease of more, um, do whatever you can. To let somebody else know and get the help. Uh, let other people help you. Um, you know, if you go to detox, people don't, I always liked it when somebody said, uh, um, well, I'm just here at an AA meeting checking it out. And uh, somebody told them, well, excuse me, young lady, but nobody comes to AA just checking it out. So if you find yourself in a detox, in an AA meeting, if you think you have the disease of more, you're an alcoholic. And I know we're not supposed to uh, pro- uh, tell anybody that they're an alcoholic, but I'm telling you that if you have those things, you're an alcoholic and get help. Thank you, Brian, for being on the Recovery Edgecast and sharing your story. And thank you, listeners, for checking us out. You can find more of our episodes at recoveryedgecast.com, on uh, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, wherever you like to check out your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.